0: Hi, I'm Teresita.
1: And I'm Dick.
0: And welcome to From the Hovel to the Big House.
1: History has always held a great fascination for me. Until now, I haven't taken the time or probably hadn't the time to try to understand the strands that make up our society. So I've teamed up with Teresita, who is a historian. And over the next few weeks, we will look at the evolution of social history in Ireland. You can think of me as the man at the bear, asking the kind of questions a man at the bear would ask.
0: I'm a social historian, and in my opinion, social history is just as important as every other discipline of history.
1: Well, I've always believed that history consisted of wars and battles and territory disputes and uh, murder and all that. The kind of it.
0: blood and guts type stuff. Blood of history. and guts, exactly. <laughs> Well, I hope to open your mind a little bit on this podcast because, in my opinion, all of history matters. Every discipline of history, whether it's political, economic, social, military, it all comes together to help us understand our past. And today I will be speaking about Claire's hidden history. So recently I have been researching social history in Claire. And today I'm going to share with you some of what I found, aspects of Clare's history you may not have known.
1: Well, there's a lot of Clare history I don't know, so you're starting with a blank page there.
0: Well, we have a great resource in Ennis here with the Clare Library and the Clare Local Studies Centre, and indeed their websites, and that is where I found um, the topics I'm speaking about today. So... I came across a very interesting report called A Report from His Majesty's Commissioners for Inquiring into the Condition of the Poorer Classes in Ireland. It's from 1835. It covers County Clare, the poorer classes of County Clare. And it's a very, very interesting report. Um, I think it can tell us a lot about social history in Clare at that time.
1: The poorer classes, I take it, are below the farming and... Is it below the labouring classes? or is it I think you the would be
0: classes? including the labouring classes, the the sort of you know poor tenant farmers. I suppose from a a broad perspective, it could really include anyone below the sort of landed gentry or professional classes. But what you're mostly focusing on are the the poorer labourers, the poorer tenant farmers, the dispossessed people, you know, itinerant type of uh, moving. You know, by itinerant I mean people moving around that kind of thing. So. It's it's really focusing on them now. You know, just to describe the um, the report, it's there's a lot of information in it um, on topics like unemployment, old age, infirmity, vagrancy, and so on. And you know, while we can't be sure on strict strict accuracy of the report, um, you know, it seems to rely heavily on testimony from people in the parishes who may not be totally honest or who may be biased in the information they give. However, it does give an interesting insight into the into the attitude to these issues, both from the Irish poor, the Irish gentry, and the men who wrote the report.
1: Can I take it that the that the family structure would be a big part of this? That would these be a lot of deserted families, or would they be illegitimate children, or would they be?
0: Well, you know. I looked at the issues of bastardy and the desertion of children in five Clare parishes. Now, the word bastardy is obviously a very offensive word, you know, in our language. However, it it is the language that they used at that time throughout the report. So that's why I'm I'm quoting it here. And it means, you know, it means illegitimate children. It means children born outside of wedlock.
1: Where a lot of the poverty probably does exist.
0: Yes. So, you know, some of the people who gave testimony to the commissioners, and it's, it's a very interesting... Cross section of society you see here from the time. I mean, it is written in 1835, but you have you know local Catholic and Protestant clergymen, justices of, justices of the peace who would have been drawn from the local gentry, tenant farmers, beggars, wet nurses. You know all sorts of people. Really, it's it's quite um, it's quite diverse, and you know. So I, I looked at these five parishes, the issues of bastardy and the desertion of children in them. And a number of things I noticed, you know, across the board. So it was very clear that among the Irish tenancy, there was a social hierarchy with some families mentioned as being better than others, you know, better in inverted commas I'm using, or marrying beneath them and so on.
1: Nothing changes there, so...
0: Nothing at all, yeah, I mean, it was quite, this was, you know, among what what would have been the lower orders. These are the tenant farmers, these are the, you know, the poor, really. I mean, some of them would be more or less poor than others, but these were not the the gentry or the middle class or anything else. And yet there was this idea that, you know, some families were above others, some married beneath them, you know, that this was a respectable family. You know, this couldn't happen in this family, it could happen in that family. There was that idea there. Very much. And I I think, you know, very much among the people, the tenantry and the, you know, the people themselves.
1: I suppose that class system really came from England with the occupation of Ireland.
0: I'm not sure that that's true. I think this seems to be quite an internal thing within the tenantry itself rather than something imposed on them. I mean, the class system that we had in terms of, you know, the ascendancy, a sort of a, a narrow professional middle class and, you know, a largely Catholic tenantry w- was something imposed on us, but I think what happened amongst the tenantry that they had this sort of class idea themselves, amongst themselves, is just something that seems to just happen in human nature throughout the world. It seems to just just happen everywhere. Yeah,
1: it makes sense, I suppose.
0: Um, but, you know, and I was looking at... um. You know, illegitimate children. And the censor of women who have illegitimate children is universal in the part in the report, parts of the report that I read. But it varied in harshness in the different parishes, probably according to the attitude of the local clergy and magistrate. So again, the magistrates would have been drawn from the local gentry. So I think the attitudes to women with illegitimate children obviously universally uh, condemned to some degree but how harsh people were and how harsh they were in their treatment of these women and these children, I think probably came from a a sort of a top-down type of attitude. So an example would be in the parish of Killaloo. The high moral character of the parish has always been maintained. This is a quote from the report. Only illegitimate children had been abandoned there. So deserted children were supported by the parish in other words that you know there were funds available to support children that were deserted and these children were were all illegitimate it says there was no desertion of legitimate children which was considered um, much more wrong you know much more immoral than just deserting an illegitimate child
1: so oh, were they turfed into homes then and
0: um more likely they were sort of uh, basically fostered in the community into so, families into families yes wet nurses and then families as they got older so, deserted children were supported by the parish, so this means there was funds available for their support. But this was opposed by many people owing to the cost, many people in Killaloo, in the parish, owing to the cost and the fact that it acts as an encouragement for the crime. Now, I'm not sure whether that means just the crime of desertion or also the crime of illegitimacy. Was it, it a crime? It mean both. Well, it wasn't. Desertion was a crime. Um, it
1: just, it just
0: it wasn't. It wasn't a formal crime, you know. Mm. It wasn't something you could be actually jailed for. But it had serious social and some legal cons- and, and legal consequences if a child was illegitimate.
1: And I suppose a fair stigma attached to the a mother. A very, and child. very high
0: level of and stigma. And of
1: the immediate family.
0: Yes, especially when you're talking about sort of this level of society. Um, sometimes, if you look at the likes of the the royalty and the aristocracy, there there mightn't have been as Much stigma attached to legitimate children there who were sort yeah, of high born, and well, that's true as well. <laughs> but, um, in some cases, there it could be quite different, you know, that the lives of, of a child who was illegitimate in that case could be very, very different from the of course, lives yeah, of these children. But at the same time, they were st- even at that level of society, they were at a very big disadvantage. Um, so you know, they're very, uh, bleak and serious elements to this report so you know one alleged incident of infanticide a year previously this is in Kildysart had or in Killaloo I beg your pardon you know had been um, reported but a, a woman threw her baby into a canal but it was proved by medical men that's in inverted commas my inverted commas that the child was stillborn So the magistrates in Kalilu, they did not grant wages, which was a kind of a a primitive type of social welfare to women with illegitimate children. However, in Llanlarra, they did. So again, you're, you're starting to see the sort of different approaches by different magistrates, magistrates being from the upper level of society, the gentry. And, you know, the granting of wages... Was a controver- as they called it, was a controversial practice as it could be seen as encouraging w- to women to have children out of wedlock and apparently may attract men to marry her, such a woman, for her money. But it, the report does say that the, in Killaloo, the spirit of the young men was too high for any of this kind of behaviour.
1: So what you're telling me is that Clannara treated them a bit better than Killaloo did?
0: Yes. And that I...
1: Killaloo kind of took... Uh, very strange, high moral ground.
0: Very, very high moral ground. So, I mean, I think that high moral ground is coming from, obviously, it's. I think it's coming from the people who are most influential within the parish. So that would be the clergy, you know, the magistrates. I think that they...
1: Probably just mean.
0: Mean as well, maybe. But, you know, they are very much, you know, there's one thing I noticed when in, in the bit about Killaloo. It's written from the commissioners, you know, it's written by the commissioners, but a lot of focus on how this is a very moral parish, this is very high standards. Already you can see hypocrisy within that because, you know, the idea that it was a terrible thing to um, desert a legitimate child, but not an illegitimate child. So they're putting one type of, you know, one life above another, which is in itself very immoral. So there's hypocrisy there.
1: Yeah, but that existed right up to the middle of the twentieth century, really, or maybe even beyond it a bit.
0: I mean, it absolutely did. Um, I just think it's interesting to see this in, you know, so starkly and in such a kind of a micro level in Irish history as to at this particular time the attitudes that were there, which did last a very long time and are quite quite recently only have changed.
1: So there are no numbers or anything for the number of illegitimate children in in either of those two places?
0: They, give some, they kind of give some vague numbers of, you know, well, there are two examples here or five examples there, but I wouldn't call it a very... Um, it's not a very solid report in terms of statistics or anything like that, and I don't think that's really the focus of it. Um, a lot of it is about, you know, attitudes and this idea of a a moral, the character of a particular parish, as well as the condition of the people in there. So, um, another example, in the parish of Kilnaboy, women with illegitimate children commonly applied to the petty sessions, which are the magistrates, for wages. And the magistrates could also issue a distress warrant against the goods of the alleged father, which is interesting. And that was a, a legal sort of instrument at the time where the father would be forced to pay you know that the father being named before the magistrates by the woman would be forced to pay something towards the upkeep of the baby, which to us I suppose seems almost a little bit progressive. You know, compared to all of the all of the responsibility being laid upon the woman, which is how it, it in future times became more common.
1: So, how did they work out who the father was?
0: Well, generally, the you know the the woman of the the word of the woman was was what was taken for was could be accepted I mean obviously the attitude or the the decision of the magistrates might vary, but definitely in examples I've read more in England, they don't go into specifics here and something like that, but in examples I've read in England, that was the case that the the woman named the man and that the you know the distress warrant or whatever was was given against him then so
1: yeah that's fair enough. I think myself, I think that once once there's a reasonable question that the man was involved, there's no reason why the state should have, or the parish should have to pay it all. and he pay
0: nothing exactly um and it's also noted in Kilnaboy that men sometimes married to get rid of rape charges because at the time it wasn't a crime to rape a woman you were married to, so this is a practice that was apparently you know sometimes happened in Kilnaboy that's just mentioned there. Um, in Kildysart Parish the commissioners noted that many ma- marriages are hurried on as they put in to save the character as they put it of the woman i.e that women were you know having sex and getting pregnant before marriage and this led to what we would call shotgun meddings so they imply that this did not reflect well on the morality of the parish
1: Although Jeff Lenigan used to say there was no sex in Ireland before RT, so obviously he hadn't read it or he hadn't read any of those reports.
0: Yeah, I think um research in general suggests that actually, you know, relations before marriage, particularly between people who had an understanding or an engagement, was quite common in England and probably also in Ireland. So I think, you know, things might have been covered up or not spoken about, but it didn't mean they didn't happen. Um You know, then one of the things that this part of the report touches on is the issue of prostitution. So it's mentioned in the report on the parish of Gildayers as something some women, who they call unfortunate creatures, who are excluded from society through having multiple legitimate children resort to. There seems to be very much um, an attitude in all the parishes, that, you know, a woman who has one illegitimate child is perhaps forgivable to some extent and allowed maybe into some extent, you know, back into society. She might marry, some of them did marry. Um, but if she had more than one, that was considered, you know, such a black mark that she, you know, she couldn't be forgiven and she couldn't be accepted back.
1: So would, would they have kept the children? Would she have kept all her children
0: well, I have a quote here from um, the commissioners in the in the parish of Kildder, and they said, "The Reverend gentleman, who was the the clergyman, the Protestant clergyman, described the condition of this unfortunate creatures who were driven in this ex- to this extremity as deplorable in the extreme. Now he paints a very bleak picture of, you know this woman and her children. Living a vagabond life, vagabond life from village to town, and living in squalor. Uh, he suggests that ultimately such women end their own lives, and gives a disturbing example of finding the small children of one such woman engaged in obscene acts. So it's a very sad and grim picture he painted of these women and children.
1: Well, what does he mean by obscene acts? Is that
0: thieving and robbery, or more more of a sexual nature? Yeah. It is, it is, it's pretty shocking. I mean, when I was reading the report, you know, I was quite shocked by it because they're, you know, they're quite um, stark in this report about these sort of matters.
1: So it sounds like they were being exploited by the people who were exploiting the woman, really. Isn't it, it does. Yeah. It,
0: I mean, there's suggestions of all kinds of abuse there.
1: But paedophilia didn't start since RT either for that matter. I
0: don't think so, yeah. no. I, don't, I mean, it's, it's very disturbing, but... You know, in Kilrush as well, prostitutes are mentioned, but only women who follow the soldiers, not local women. I think the people of Kilrush were very, very um, clear about that, that they didn't want, you know, because I I think, I believe that Kilrush was a a kind of a garrison town or, I mean, it was a, I, I think, as far as I'm aware, there were a lot of soldiers there and,
1: it was a garrison town and a port town, and a, so a port town, boards, it, had, it had every, <laughs> so, it had a lot of strings to its bow.
0: Yeah, so but uh, the the people in Carrus did not want anyone to think that the local women were engaged in this sort of enterprise.
1: They got that and, wrong, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, and then in the parish of Kilnaboy, rich men sometimes tried to bribe the young man men of the district to marry their mistresses, allegedly. But however, the young men had too high a moral character to do this. According to the people of Kilnaboy,
1: to marry whose mistresses? The rich men's mistresses.
0: It's yes, rich men. It's it's actually stated that now they don't name the rich men. Um, I don't know how many rich men were in Kilnaboy. I would have to do more research to try and I figure that one short. out. Yeah. <laughs> it's not something you'd you'd expect. It's mean, not something I would have expected, oh. but. Um, <laughs> Now, I mean, it is a very interesting report. It's available on the Clare Library Local Studies website. Just to finish off, you know, there there is very occasionally a nice story in what is otherwise, you know, a bleak and quite sad report. And it states, you know, the, the report states that the commissioners visited a wet nurse in Killaloo who was charged with looking after one of the deserted infants. They found the woman who added fondling it in her arms. The little orphan looks very healthy and from its apparent affection to its nurse seemed to have met kindly treatment. The woman said that although she had not been paid for some time for minding the child, she would never wish to part with it. So there obviously were instances of, you know, kindness and love shown to these children and the commissioners also noted with some surprise that across the parishes many women show great affection for their illegitimate children.
1: These wet nurses, they'd be breastfeeding them, I take it.
0: Yes, that's to breastfeed children. In this case, you know, wet nurses were employed by the upper class, the rich, because there was an idea that women, upper class women shouldn't breastfeed babies. So they employed a, a wet nurse who would have been a woman, a poor woman, you know, a relatively poor woman who had just recently had a baby and was they had milk to... Yeah. But in this case, she was hired, you know, to... Um, by the parish to look after the, what was a deserted child.
1: And she stayed looking she after, after the to, child. She, she yeah.
0: obviously wanted to keep she the built child. To bond with the child. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, have a look at the, the Clare Local Studies website for more information. It's called the Report from His Majesty's Commissioners for Inquiring into the Condition of the Poorer Classes in Ireland.
1: We'll do oh. that sometime.
0: And as regards, you know, kind of hidden history in Clare, um... In my research on Clare history, I came across a very fascinating book that I'm going to talk about now. It's called Women of Clare by Lucille Ellis, and it's published by the Clare Roots Society. Um, it's a really, really interesting read for anyone interested in, in women's history, but also, you know, in, in social history more generally. And today I, um, I have picked one of the women to talk about, and her name was Hannah Villiers Boyd. She was born Hannah Vandalour in Newmarket and Fergus at the turn of the nineteenth century. Now we've spoken about the van Lohr, um family before on this podcast. They were a family of Dutch origin and very large landowners in Clare, especially West Clare. Now Hannah Vandalour came from a cadet, which means you know a lower branch of the Vandalour family um, who were who were established in Newmarket and Fergus. Her father was Colonel Boyd Vandeleur, and the family owned an estate near Newmarket in Fergus. So Hannah was educated privately, probably in Limerick. And when her father died, her brother John Scott Vandeleur inherited, you know, the house and estate. Unfortunately, John Scott was a gambler, and he soon bankrupted both himself and the family estate, which was sold. So despite this misfortune, Hannah still had a diary of £1,000, which was a considerable fortune at that time. In 1832, she married a man who described himself as Dr. William Cathcart Boyd in Limerick, and he was from Scotland. Now, William Boyd was in fact a fantasist and a fraudster who quickly spent all of Hannah's diary before abandoning her and their young children. So...
1: Clearly, he wasn't a medical doctor.
0: He certainly was not a medical doctor,
1: yeah, it's strange or any kind of, of doctor. People, it's strange the number of people that take a doctor as a moniker to give him a bit of respectability.
0: It is, and it's it's a thin veneer of respectability, really. Um, but this man was a serial fraudster, bigamist, and fantasist. So, for Hannah, you know, she'd been brought into, she'd been born into a genteel family, you know, member of a, a very prominent. Landowning family brought up obviously in luxury in this house and estate in Newmarket and Fergus, privately educated, all of that. And she now found herself, you know, hardly, abandoned.
1: Hardly a housing estate.
0: Oh, I beg your pardon. Um, you know, I mean, an estate, an estate and a house, a, a large house. Um, you're right. Thanks for correcting me there. Um, she now found herself penniless and abandoned. So bravely, she made the decision to immigrate to Australia, which was quite a brave decision for a lady in her circumstances at that time. And in Australia, she managed to make a new life for herself. She worked as a governess and teacher and wrote two books on education, which are still available in Australia. These books contained quite revolutionary ideas about the role women could play in children's education. She also recognised the importance of early childhood learning and the benefits of positive reinforcement in the teaching of children. So she was quite a forward-thinking woman of her time. And, you know, materials by by Hannah Villiers-Boyd can still be found in in some libraries and, and education resources in Australia. So Hannah moved back to Ireland in 1861... By that time her husband William Boyd had several jail sentences under his belt and in 1862 he was on trial again this time for bigamy. Evidence was given during the trial that he had three living wives including Hannah. He was convicted and sent back to prison so her marriage was you know invalid essentially um, which must have been an awful shock for her but By the 1870s, Hannah was a resident of St. Patrick's Hospital in Dublin, which is a place of confinement of the mentally ill. She died there in in, in 1879. The records state that her illness was delusions caused by overstudy. Now...
1: More likely delusions caused by uh, uh,
0: Dr. Bide. Well, possibly, and you know... Or or were there delusions? You know, I mean, she had advanced ideas for a woman at the time, which just may not have been accepted.
1: She was ahead of her time, in other words.
0: She was very ahead of her time. And who knows how the the doctors at the time might have viewed her through that prism. You know, whether she was mentally ill or not, we, we have no way of knowing.
1: Clearly, if her books are still available in libraries in Australia, she must have pretty good ideas of what where society should develop.
0: Absolutely, and you know, this idea of overstudy being a cause of of the of mental illness, I think is a sign of how these people, these doctors viewed, you know, intellectual pursuits in women, you know, they might not have approved of them, and that could have led to her confinement, but Anyway, I got all of this information in the Women of Clare book by Lucille Ellis, and I'd highly recommend it for anyone interested in women's or social history. So that's just one story, but there's loads of interesting women in that book.
1: Yeah, it'd be well worth someone taking a read of that as well.
0: Yes, and that is also available in the Clare Library.
1: Okay, you're promoting the Clare Library now?
0: (laughs) Well, it is a fantastic resource, I have to say. I've been really happy with, you know, what I found there since I've started doing a bit of research into social history and Tlaire. And it is a really, really good resource, so.
1: Okay, that's very interesting. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. We'll be back next week.
0: Thank you very much. And I hope you enjoyed today and that it gave you something to think about. See you again next week.